Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, we're right in the middle of it, and beginning with verse 14, I'm going to go ahead and read these verses to you, beginning with verse 14 to the end of the chapter. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And then he gets into the account of the rich man and Lazarus, which we are going to study this morning, but I'll, I'll save that for in a little bit. The, the topic today, wrath or mercy, it's, it's a heavy subject for uh, myself because when I come before the Lord and, and I stand in his presence, I, I realize that as a sinner, I deserve the wrath of God. But I, I pray for his mercy. I pray for his grace in my life. So that we're, sometimes we, we forget that if, if the Lord, if Jesus would have returned already, or let's say if he would have returned 11 years ago, I myself would not have gotten raptured. I was far from the Lord. I, I didn't have a relationship with Christ. I wasn't in Christ in my life. And, and sometimes we, we we're praying for, for Christ to return, and that's a good prayer to pray for. But we realize sometimes he's holding back and he's waiting because there's still people who need to be saved. And there's people in our lives who need to be saved. And we are called to be evangelists. We're called to walk with the gospel of peace, to, to give people that one thing that can save their soul. And so often we, we fail. But the encouragement here is, look, today is the first day of the rest of your life. So we could look at our past and become frustrated and upset with the way we behaved. Or we could say, you know what? God today has said today is the day of salvation. And we could accept his grace, receive it. Even though we don't deserve it, we can receive it and move forward. Because maturity is not looking back so much in our life. And the, the first verse, in verse 14. Remember, Jesus was giving parables already. He says in verse 14, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they derided him. So last week, we recall Jesus, he was teaching on stewardship. He, he was showing how an unjust servant behaved. And now the Pharisees, it says, who they were loving money, they're feeling convicted. So because they're feeling convicted, what do they do? They turn up their nose to Jesus, and they sneer and scoff at him. That's what the word deride means. They don't want to hear it because their hearts are hard. And notice they loved money. And I, I keep this verse 
in my mind. It says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now notice here, because people say, oh, money is the root of all evil, right? You've probably heard that phrase before, but it actually doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. It's when people begin to focus all their attention on their finances and on the wealth of this world, which is going to fade away. The Pharisees were this way, sad to say. In verse 15, we read, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now see, he, he's calling them out right here. He's putting them on blast right here. He's saying, you guys justify yourselves. That word for justify, it means as if you've never done anything wrong. But we cannot claim ourselves justified. Now that's something, as believers, you guys are allowed justification from the Lord. You can receive that. And that's just as if you've never done anything wrong. But these guys, the Pharisees, apart from the Lord, were saying, oh, we're justified. We're made righteous. But remember, only God can forgive sins. Which leads me to my first point this morning. Point number one, God knows your heart. Ooh, right? All of a sudden it's like, oh man, God knows my heart. Or maybe you've even heard a, a brother in the Lord who is kind of living out his Christian liberty in, in, in sin, and he's like, oh, God knows my heart, brother. I, God knows why I, I, I couldn't make it to church today. God knows my heart. Yeah, God knows your heart is wicked, right? What do we know in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 through 10? It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the response, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. See, God knows. Hey, God knows us when we're by ourselves, alone, those thoughts that come into our mind. And I don't believe that God is watching down on earth, even though he's, he's omnipresent. I don't believe God is watching everything we're doing because he's ready for, to swat us like a fly when we do something wrong. No, he wants to watch us because he cares for us. He's, I'm looking after you. I want what's best for you. And what's best for you is to stop the sin in your life. Jesus said that for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord there in verse 15. That word for highly esteemed, it's those things that are thought to be exalted and heavenly. The things that man, the world system, thinks to be so great to the Lord is idolatry. That's what the word abomination is. It's a foul stench to the Lord. And these are the, the Pharisees. These are the men who are supposed to lead the people to represent God to them and to represent the people to God. And they were failing at it. 
in God's presence, I realize I'm a sinner. I can't rescue myself. And I cannot in my own strength make myself right before the Lord. I need Jesus in my life. And this is, this is me speaking this. This is the truth. We, we need Jesus in our life. We're going through Ephesians with the men on Friday nights. And we, we saw how Paul exhorted the Ephesian church to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is not a self-righteousness, which God said self-righteousness is like filthy rags. But this is coming to the cross of Jesus with your sins. And I can't really picture that fully. I can kind of imagine it being there on that day when Jesus was put on the cross. Yeah, we have images of the passion of the Christ and things like that. But to actually be there and to put yourself in that position where you're saying, Jesus, these are my sins. Take them. That's a hard thing to do because we feel like, no, 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 no. We want self-condemnation. We want to save ourselves. We don't, we don't want to say that something else is saving us. That's why it takes, it takes a humility and a brokenness to come before the Lord to do that. But when we do that, when we come to the Lord and we say, okay, Lord, this is my struggle. This is my sin. Take it. I'm, I'm giving it to you. Then we can have his life placed inside of us. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what's amazing with that is when Satan thought he was winning. He was like, yeah, I got, I got the Messiah up on the cross. And Satan was like, yeah, I'm, I'm winning right here. I'm tearing down Jesus, their Messiah. Little did he know that in reality, when the world put Jesus on the cross, when Jesus allowed himself to die for the sins of the world, he was then multiplying himself in you guys. Because Jesus makes your heart his home. And that's why they're called, in the beginning of the early church, they were called little Christians. That's where the word, uh, or little Christ, that's where the word Christian came from. Because they were Jesus, it was, he was living through them. So when we have that, when we t- accept that grace in our life, then we don't need to be condemned anymore. And we can walk forward and saying, I'm going to keep fighting the good fight. In verse 16, Jesus said the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So John the Baptist, he he marked the end of one of the greatest aspects of God's works. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Do you guys see our Bibles here this morning? We have uh, this divided into two testaments, right? We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. You guys want to know why? Do you guys know why? Do you guys know what uh, the word testament, what it means? The word testament, it means covenant. What's covenant mean? A covenant is a relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other 
to reach a goal. So God and mankind. Now the Old Testament, the old promise that God made with humanity was of the coming Messiah. And the new promise, the new testament, the new covenant that God made with us was that the Messiah was going to come back. And the Old Testament and the New Testament, what divides it? Jesus. He came. Old Testament, they were doing ceremonial sacrifice. New Testament, Jesus was our sacrifice. That's the big difference between Old Testament and New Testament. God's kingdom was foretold to be coming. And it it said in that verse that everyone is pressing into it. Now, when it says everyone is pressing into it, some people take this as two ways. Some people see this as either a good thing or a bad thing. Some people say, well, it's actually a good thing because people are, are pressing into it and going through trials to get to Jesus, to get to the gospel. But other people see when it says everyone is pressing into it as actually enemies pressing against the kingdom. That, that people are violently fighting against the kingdom of God and there's spiritual warfare going on. But remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So we know we're on the, on the winning side. We're on the winning team. He says this in verse 17. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. So we see this. It's, the, the word isn't going to fail. So because of that, well, does that mean the Old Testament, since Jesus came, is done away with now? We don't really need to uh, follow after the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments. So we might as well just study the New Testament, right? We don't need to study the Old Testament anymore. No, wrong! Wrong. I woke up some of you guys in the back right now. The Old Testament is not done away with. Why? Because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. So my second point of my study this morning, the law is valid. The law is valid. Jesus, remember, he said, I came to fulfill the law. Now what about those weird laws in the Old Testament, right? Got laws about you can't mix fabrics. I'm, I'm doing that this morning. Got laws about not eating lobster, which is one of my favorite dishes ever. When I was given the choice of, when I was about eight years old, if I wanted to get Nintendo 64, or have a lobster dinner. I chose the lobster dinner. Yep. I was a foodie even at a young age. We have laws in the Old Testament about pork and animal sacrifice. How come we don't follow, as Christians, we don't follow the Old Testament laws anymore? It's because of this. Because the work of Jesus on the cross for us freed us from the ceremonial law but there's still moral laws from the Old Testament that we still follow. So the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, are the things that we still follow. But the ceremonial laws are the things we don't have to anymore. We're not, we're not bound to that anymore. And, and here's a quick, uh, uh, easy way to, to understand doctrine. Number one, did Jesus teach about it? Number two, 
did the apostles teach about it in the New Testament? And number three, is it practiced in the book of Acts? So if all three of those are, are meeting, we see those things as the things that we still practice today in church. Now this next verse, in verse 18, Jesus is going to give us an example of how the law is still valid. In verse 18, he says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now I have to admit, when I first went through this portion of scripture, I, when I went, came to verse 18, I was like, well, where, did that, where did this come from? Like that, that was out of the blue, right? He's talking about the law and, and, and the kingdom. And all of a sudden he's like, by the way, divorce. If you, if you leave your, your wife and go to somebody else, you're committing adultery. I was like, that was kind of out of the blue. But he's actually using this right here as an example of a ceremony, I'm sorry, of a moral law that we still abide by. We know in context, keep this in mind, of the whole Bible that a spouse is allowed to divorce under those tragic circumstances of adultery. So it's all about context, context, context when you're reading through the word and when you're studying the word. And what I love about the law not failing, as he's talking about the law here, is one of God's covenant promises is his new covenant that Jesus brought to us. Whereas the old covenant was based on man's operation and it failed because the Israelites couldn't keep up their end of the deal. The new covenant is based on the work of Jesus and his work does not fail. The Bible teaches us that he's going to write his law on our hearts to give us forgiveness, to give us the Holy Spirit, to empower us to love and obey God. And we look forward to when Jesus is going to reign here on earth as king. Now, the next account that we're going to look at in our study this morning, Jesus is going to teach about the rich man and Lazarus. And perhaps you've heard this account before. Now, there are different views about what we're about to read about the rich man and Lazarus. Some see this as a parable. They, they don't see it as a historical event. There's actually quite a, a lot of Christians who see it as a parable. Others take this as a real account. And the reason why, including myself, take it as a real account, is because, remember, the parables were earthly illustrations to show heavenly truths. And he was relating these earthly illustrations to Jewish traditions. And I, I don't see this fitting in that same category as a parable. And in, in all the other parables, Jesus never named names like he did in this account right here. And also, later on, in our New Testament, Jesus interacts with elements of this passage, and we'll get into that. So let's look at verse 19 on the rich man and Lazarus. It says here, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. All right, so we have now this guy who's a wealthy man. He's clothed in his expensive fine clothing, Purple was a color that shows wealth, royalty, and status. 
and it says he fared sumptuously, meaning he had luxurious parties every day. Some might have had a party now and then, but this guy was doing it every day. And he was doing it in, with his Gucci outfit on, and, and people were just having Coachella at his house every day. He, and people were eating, and the way they partied back then, they partied for a long time. And there, was, there he was, living his life. And then in verse 20, But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So now we have another man who, who's outside watching as this guy every day just parties it up. And all he's hoping for is that the, the bread that these party animals would have, it was kind of like a pita bread, they would use it as napkins because they didn't have the napkins back then. They had pita bread or something similar to it, and they would wipe their hands with this bread, and then they would throw the bread out and usually feed it to the dogs. This poor beggar is looking at that bread and hoping that they throw the bread near the gate so that he can just grab some and feast on that. And that was what the dogs ate. And this guy had some sort of sickness on him, full of sores. These are ulcers, and he's starving. And what's interesting about his name, Lazarus, his name literally means whom God helps. He just wanted that little morsel of bread. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced dogs in third world countries, but they are not the same kind of animal that we have here as the, our little domesticated chihuahuas. Dogs in third world countries, oh, sorry, Ida, <laughs> we love your chihuahuas. <laughs> dogs in third world countries, however, are not the same. They're, they're scavengers. And they multiply like crazy. And they actually have a problem because they, they, they don't neuter their dogs. And they just multiply and, the, and they run around and, and they have fleas and all kinds of... When you see them, they don't look pretty. They got like hair loss and just ulcers. And I, when I was... Where was I? In Peru, I, I actually saw there's dog gangs too. Then they're territorial. I saw literally a, a, a one like three dogs fighting this one poor dog and then they they were attacking him biting him and then he started to run away and as soon as he got past a certain point all the three dogs just stopped and then he went and ran away and they're like all right all right he's gone they're not pleasant so these sickly creatures are coming to this man and they're licking his sores that's the that's what's happening to Lazarus here so Lazarus is in a lowly place. And then in verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So now we notice two different paths that these men take. The beggar who had no funeral was taken by angels into heaven now, the rich man who had a funeral, he was buried, it talks about no angelic escorts. 
I wonder. It's maybe. I wonder if it's like that that movie Ghost when the the I don't know if you guys remember that those scary dark shadows come out and they take the guy's soul down into hell. It's kind of weird. <laughs> now, <laughs> this is what I see. Heaven here is promised to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father but by me. So this is my third point, and I almost titled my study this this morning, but I felt the other title was more fitting. But my third point is hell is real. Hell is a real place. And I, as a pastor, have a, a duty and a responsibility to warn people. In verse 23, it says, And being in torments in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus was in his bosom. Now, something I, I know right away is the tortures, the torments, the, the, the acute pains is what the Greek terminology literally means. That right away is like, oh man, that for, for Forever? And ever, we could hold our, our, our hand over a flame, over a candle maybe for like, what, a second? But being in that for eternity? Now, Hades is the general Greek word for hell. But the Bible, if you guys don't know this yet, it's kind of interesting. There's actually four terms and four different compartments that the Bible talks about related to hell. Now, this isn't a topic that I like to teach on all the time, but it's important to know. The first one, as I mentioned, it, Hades, that's a, a general term for hell. In the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word is Sheol. Now, there's a second place listed in re relation to hell, and this is known as the Abuso, which the Abuso is in re the book of Revelation. An angel is going to unlock a key in the earth that's going to open up from the river Euphrates this shaft. And that shaft is known as the Abuso, where these demons are going to come flying out so that they can torture men here during the great tribulation. And thank God, as believers, we are not appointed unto wrath. So we're not going to be here during that great tribulation. Because I can't imagine all those movies that we've seen of like kind of demonic warfare and all, all those scary images that, those are were from man's mind. But I, I think and I wonder, man, like, where is that inspiration coming from? There's a, a third place in relation to hell that's listed in, in the Bible. And, and the word for that, the Greek word is Tartarus. And the word Tartarus is a pit that the demons in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 6, they started to have sexual relationships with women. So God then punished them and put them in the pit, Tartarus, where they're now in chains awaiting for the day of judgment when they're going to be unleashed during, again, the great tribulation to kill mankind and to wreak havoc on them. So that's the third place. And lastly, the fourth place known as hell in our Bible is a place called Gehenna. And that's at the end of the Battle of Armageddon and at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. 
Satan is released one more time. There's a battle. And God is going to take hell, the lake of fire, and cast it into Gehenna, into outer darkness. So that's going to be for eternity, forever. And that last one was Gehenna. So this is a real thing. And this is why the, the text this morning, it's, it's a heavy and a serious topic. Because we have friends and family members who, if they don't have Christ in their life, this idea of Lazarus being here in Abraham's bosom, it's another interesting topic. Now, to be in one's bosom, it was a term used as a place of high honor. Even in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So to be in Abraham's bosom, it's, it's not like a literal, he's on Abraham's bosom, but he's in this place of honor with the saints. It says in verse 24, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Now, notice this. He knew who Abraham was. He said, Father Abraham. So he has some sort of knowledge and could recognize who Abraham is. And it also kind of shows me this man was probably Jewish if he's calling him Father Abraham, the rich man. And he knew the truth then. And he didn't obey. If he was a, a Jewish person, he would have known of the true and living God. And he says, have mercy on me. He, he's saying, have compassion, have pity upon me. He has four senses here that, we're, that we notice. He's able to, to see, so he has the sense of his sight. He's able to, to hear. He's calling out to him. The touch is there. He wants a, a bit of water on his tongue and the, the flames and, and also the taste with that, that water to go on his tongue. And sight, sound, touch, taste. What's the fifth sense that we have? Sight. Sound, you could hear, you could t touch. Smell. Thank you. <laughs> I, I wouldn't doubt that he could probably smell the stench in hell. I wouldn't doubt it. It didn't say it right here, but if he's got all the other senses, he's able to also know who Abraham is. And I, I don't want to scare us this morning, but this is the reality. When, when someone is, is on fire, I don't think their initial thought is, I want my tongue to cool off. So it's like, what kind of fire is this guy in? He's tormented in, in intense pain and distress. So this is a reason here this morning why we as believers need to take Jesus seriously and warn other people despite the way they think of us. Man, they think we're crazy already because we're Christian. They think, oh, we drank the Kool-Aid, right? But who cares? Their, their life is on the line. It says in verse 25, But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. 
but now he is comforted and you are tormented. So remember, last we talked about being prepared to give an account in in the parable of the unjust steward. This rich man, he did not prepare to give an account to the Lord. And it's not because he was simply rich that he went to hell. Because Jesus, he did say it was harder for a rich man to enter into heaven. He didn't say it was impossible. He said with God, all things are possible. It was because he didn't have a relationship with God. And people, in the end, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, I I did church for you. I gave money to church. Uh, I I did all these good things for you, Lord. Uh, And Jesus is going to tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. So we can play church, but we need a relationship with Jesus to be saved. Now, if we're convicted this morning, that's the Holy Spirit. And that's a good thing that the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, there's things in our life that we need to get right. Even, even with salvation, there's things in our life where we realize with this text, like, okay, Lord, I know you're speaking to me on that struggle in my life and I need to give it to you because I don't, I don't want to reject your love. In my, I don't want to be apart from Christ in my life. There's warnings in the Bible about this. Now, to encourage us this morning, When you are in Christ, you are eternally secure. When you are in Christ, you are eternally secure. So choose Christ. In verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So, so the beggar's crying out. He's in, he's in flames. And he's saying, Abraham, call Lazarus to dip that water on my tongue. I'm in pain. And Abraham says, there's a gulf between you guys. He can't cross to that side. And I re- recognize here the afterlife in this point in time in history had two compartments. On one side was the place of torment. And on the other place was Abraham's bosom. The saints were not in the flames. The saints were in the comfort of Abraham and the other saints. Now, Jesus, when he was resurrected, the Bible teaches us that he took those saints with him up into heaven. And Jesus even spoke about his going into the center of the earth to gather the saints to take them into heaven. This is before, again, this place of Abraham's bosom and Hades, this is before Jesus Christ died on the cross for people's sins and rose from the grave. And I'll show you guys in a few verses. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. Jesus spoke about going into the center of the earth. He said, an evil, an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And why did Jesus go? To preach captivity and give the captives their freedom. 
Later on, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, referring to David and the Messiah in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, said, God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, speaking of David, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So you see, David, who was there in Abraham's bosom, his soul was not left in that place. Now remember, the reason why they couldn't go into heaven yet is because, do you guys remember what the requirement is to get into heaven? It's perfection. So, before Jesus removed the sins by dying on the cross, people were put in Abraham's bosom, awaiting for the time of the Messiah to come. Even the author of Hebrews wrote about it in Hebrews 10, verses 4 and 5. He said, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore he, Jesus, came into the world. He said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And what was that body used for? The cross. Jesus put himself on the cross for our sins so that we can have an eternal life with him. Because to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. I recognize, too, because he, he couldn't cross that gulf that was fixed in between Abraham's bosom and the place of torment. He was past the point of no return. The Bible doesn't teach about purgatory. We're not going to get to this secondary realm if we're okay, we're not that bad, but we're not that good, and wait there and have someone pray us out of it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we have one life and it will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Those things that have eternal reward. Let's look at verse 27. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. And I recognize here the rich man, he cared when it was too late. He cared when it was too late. And he even cared for his family when it was too late. So think of that. People in hell are thinking about the wrongdoing that's still happening on earth. Like my brothers, I don't want them to come here. I don't want them to experience these flames that I'm in. These are five literal brothers he's talking about. In verse 29, and Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So this is my last point of my study this morning. Point four, be persuaded by Christ. That word persuaded, it means convinced. And in the Old Testament, they were warned about hell. 
And he thought, this rich man who was in torment, if someone would just go back from the dead, then my brothers will believe. But what happened? Jesus did come back from the dead, didn't he? And people still don't believe. Because they choose not to. Maybe even doubting Thomas. I think he gets a bad rap sometimes. I think he's just really skeptical. But doubting Thomas said that unless I see Jesus in front of me and I see the piercings in his hands, the piercing in his side, I will bind, I'm not going to believe you other disciples. And then all of a sudden Jesus walks in the room. He's like, Thomas, here, put your hand in my side. Fill, fill the holes in my hand. And Thomas at that point says, my God and my Savior. Wow. And then Jesus goes and tells him, Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. You realize that's us this morning? That we are blessed. We are more blessed than those who saw. Because sometimes we think, man, if I would have just saw Jesus there on the cross, I probably would live a totally different life, right? But Jesus said, no, you are more blessed because you are living on faith without seeing. And that faith grows. That faith, it's that simple belief, that trust in Jesus. We're learning about this on, on Friday nights, the, the armor of God. The men, we, we talked about taking the shield of faith in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. When Paul is writing this, he's describing the Roman armor. He's got the shield here, which is this large door-shaped oblong shield. And I realized, look, that this faith, it snuffs out the attacks of the enemy. It extinguishes the fire that the enemy is attacking us with. Those flaming missiles. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced these spiritual warfare attacks where it's just great and you just are like, man, God, I need you to intervene right now. There's some spiritual warfare going on. I'm like, what's going on at two in the morning that, that the demons are got, got to wake us up then at that time? Why at that time when I'm trying to sleep? Just do it during the day when I'm, when I'm right in the middle of, of, of reading my Bible because I've got the armor on, right? But no, they, they try to do it when we're sleeping, right? They wake us up with a thought in the, in the middle of the night. Temptation, fear, anxiety. But faith, that faith that grows, it quenches those things. It puts them out. Because it's not faith in ourselves or in our own doing. It's faith in Jesus and in his work. And we, we recognize when any of the parts of our armor are attacked, faith is what guards them. As those missiles are coming, those arrows, faith guards those things. Faith in Jesus guards us. Remember, Satan does want to attack, to attack us. He wants to kill us with lies and pride and, and suffering and accusing us. These are his tactics. But with faith, when we are persuaded of the promises that God has given us, 
that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That he knows the thoughts towards us, plans of good for a future. That there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are set free. We can grow in that faith. And you guys realize if you didn't have the trials that you had in your life, your faith would be so small. You really wouldn't even need faith without trials. Things that people would live in this perfect utopia society where everything's good, right? And nobody hurts anyone's feelings. But with people now, with the devil, with the fallen world that we live in, with our own sin, now we need faith. So faith then is necessary and it grows, and God is molding and shaping you through the trials in your life to make that poema, his workmanship, something he loves and is handcrafted for a specific call and a specific purpose that only you can fulfill. So with our study this morning, we saw God knows your heart. We saw how the law is fulfilled, it's valid by Christ. We saw that hell is real. So let's be persuaded by Christ. Jesus is with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So we can walk forward in the call he has for us. Let's pray.